A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anusha Kellyan and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush, Alva Ray and Patrick Maguire to discuss the latest in the Dominic Cummings row and what the implications will be. And you ask us, what's it like when you're faced with a political opponent on TV? So we're recording on a Tuesday afternoon after an extraordinary bank holiday weekend. And the main story from that weekend of Dominic Cummings' trip to... Durham during lockdown is still topping the news agenda. The main sort of points of of interest over the weekend were Boris Johnson backing him and uh, Dominic Cummings then doing his own press conference on a Monday afternoon, defending his actions and laying out in great detail what he'd done and what he hadn't done when and getting a grilling from journalists in the uh, Downing Street number 10 garden. Stephen, you were sort of covering every twist and turn of this. What did you make of it? And did did you change your mind about what kind of story this was as it was unfolding? Yes, I, I did change my mind. I mean, so I guess I knew at the start of this story that I was hashtag out of touch, right? In then I felt very sympathetic to the case for keeping Catherine Calderwood, the Scottish CMO who had to resign for visiting her second home with her family. And I felt less sympathetic because I have less sympathy with someone needing to get their end away. But um, I felt still felt sympathetic to the government in terms of the loss of Neil Ferguson, not, not the historian, but the epidemic. Yeah, it's day however many of lockdown and I still cannot pronounce the name of a specialist who specialises in pandemics outlined. Why couldn't they just be called pandemicologists? Because I can't <laughs> pronounce that either, it turns out. I So I, I knew, it's one of those things where you know you see something and you're like, this is definitely going to be even more unpopular than those things because like the others were like scientists and people can will kind of do that. Oh, they've just got no common sense. This is just going to make people really angry, isn't it? But I kind of thought when it happened, I thought I can see how if you just do a, I was worried about my child and I made a mistake and I'm sorry, then maybe this problem can go away. And then even I, someone who started from that relative position of sympathy, found the um, the response by some, the kind of the line to take by some cabinet ministers and some Tory MPs who turns out have no sense of like where the public mood is. I found I found myself getting incredibly angry. And that was the point where I was like, oh, this is going to be quite a big deal, isn't it? Because if, if I, someone who started fairly sympathetic to keeping these people, am like sitting here literally incoherent with rage when someone goes, you're just being a lefty Remainer. It's just like, mm, 
A lot of people have attended funerals via Zoom, guys. Read the room. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and I thought, oh, this is going to be bad. Then, basically, there was a point in Grant Champ's press conference when he had to defend, which actually had some very good pro-cycling and pro-growth and pro-environment policies on that he was trying to filibuster with. But that was the moment when I tipped over from... <laughs> Oh, no, this thing because obviously I'm not saying people shouldn't be angry. I think people have a legitimate reason to feel annoyed. But it is also at base a hilarious story because it is the behavior of an entitled toddler. Like, right. Yo, it just every every aspect of it is the kind of thing a child would do. Right. The kind of like I've done it. I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to try and kind of go like, oh, no, actually, our guidelines were deeply clear. Then, like, the very long statement, which was just like, you've literally just stood up and gone, here are the extenuating circumstances to me breaking lockdown. I broke lockdown. And the (laughs) now I, like I assume reading between the lines, Mary Wakefield, am not a driver. So perhaps readers can correct me on this. But I feel that if Felicity said to me, I'm not sure if I can see. So what we're going to do is we're going to get in a car and drive for 30 miles to see if I can pull it off. I'd just be like, I thought you loved me. Why are you trying to get me killed? Like, just, and it just like the hilarity of, like, it's like that story either reveals he's dishonest or his judgment is so bad that he honestly should not be, be anywhere near executive functions, right? So wh- which one is it? Neither can be good. And I just at that point thought, this is a, ultimately a hilarious series of events. And I think in many ways that feels to me like the most worrying bit for the government, right? And okay, there are some things people are still angry about four years afterwards. And of course we shouldn't forget that the most important elections this government will fight are in eleven months in the Scottish parliamentary elections. But anger can fade. But the thing which would really worry me in CCHQ is actually the resting state when this is over is like you're a bunch of jokers, aren't you? You are just a bunch of jokers. <laughs> There were parts of that press conference that reminded me a bit of the Prince Andrew interview, where you just know that someone is not only sort of displaying their their poor judgment as if it's perfectly reasonable, and that word reasonable was used quite quite a lot, but also that sort of out of touchedness as well. You know, this is a man who's supposed to have his finger on the pulse of of how the nation really feels and 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 what people want from their politicians and the people's government, of course. And then all sorts of things, not even, you know, particularly relevant to, to the story that he said, just sounded really tin-eared. The idea of the home, his father's farm that he'd gone to wasn't a very nice place to stay at because it was concrete blocks. It was just such an odd thing to say because a lot of people do live in concrete blocks in this country. It was just such an odd statement. And even the idea of not asking your boss if you can leave work and drive halfway, well, a lot longer than halfway across the country, most people would have to ask their boss permission to do that. So I just felt there were all sorts of little sort of asides that made him sound really out of touch. And that jars with the kind of mystique of Dominic Cummings being this genius mouthpiece of the people. See, I think I had the kind of opposite reaction to Stephen in terms of charting my feelings about the significance of the story, where right away it was really, really clear to me how upset my friends and family who don't follow politics were, like doctor friends who, you know, writing death certificates and, you know, the last page of the medical notes explains that, you know, the family had, you know, asked requested to come in and visit and they couldn't and they you know they couldn't set up a video call on time you know people getting off their shifts 
on Friday to to discover that story. People just of, of all ages, every WhatsApp group I was in, people who never talk about politics were really, really upset and asking me because they thought I'd know how they could show their frustration and, you know, discovering that writing to their MP would be the best recourse for the first time, people who would never really think of doing something like that. And then when the second story came out, came out the Barnard Castle story, I was pretty certain that Dominic Cummings couldn't survive that and really expected him to go right away and wrote a piece for the website uh, saying that his position was untenable. And Stephen suggested I added in a couple of caveats because it wasn't 100% certain that he was going to resign. And obviously that was completely right. But then watching the, the press conference, I actually... I'm surprised by the polling that suggests that more people having watched the press conference or with the passage of time, more people now think he should resign than they did before his press conference. Because watching it, I sort of thought that he was trying to reframe. I mean, he was obviously trying to reframe the discussion in his favor, sort of trying to explain to people that if they were feeling angry and frustrated, it's because of, of what the media told them rather than because of what actually happened. And he was trying to have a direct line to the public and um, to bring them on side. And I kind of thought that it was a, a bit like a sort of dog whistle to people who had voted for Brexit or people who've been frustrated with elites to try to tell them, you know, like, look, if these are your politics, you're on the wrong side. Like, you shouldn't be frustrated at me. You should be frustrated at the media. And I, I thought that that would work, even though there were some obvious holes in his account I I thought that given the divisions of Brexit he could pull it back onto that terrain of the Brexit debate and he clearly has utterly failed to do that apart from I think you know it's still 20% of people don't think that he should resign or don't think that he's done anything wrong so you know that's still one in five which is not unsubstantial but I, I think I really thought that this master of messaging and political communications would be able to shift the debate more than he has managed to do. Yeah, the question for me is whether, obviously, the, Matt Ford, the comedian, tweeted something like, Boris Johnson just lost the next election. And obviously the answer to that question is, it's too early to tell. But, you know, it's not impossible. The question for me, if the government's approval ratings continue sliding downwards, do we remember this weekend as a a Black Wednesday, or do we then, do in 2024, will we look back on it as we do the massive slump in David Cameron's approval ratings after the 2012 budget? Now, without presupposing the eventual outcome of this crisis, but knowing everything we know about what's happened thus far and how well the government has responded to it, and also just the, as you have all said, the sheer raw anger of this whole incident i don't know why my first the first example i wanted to sort of to sort of reach for was john gummer force feeding a beef burger to his kid at the height of <laughs> the bse outbreak but this but that be... is exactly it isn't it though because it, it feeding the beef burger was comical right it was comical and i think like, obviously boris johnson has been a master of making people laugh with him but also at him but i just think like ultimately it's the comical nature of, of the row that I think is the long-term thing that would be freaking me out were I, I a conservative. Obviously, this, this makes a lot of people in Westminster cringe. But, you know, something you do hear, or I did hear when I was on the road in in 2019, was you, you do hear the, the lines about Boris Johnson from ordinary people, which is, you know, he's a jack the lad. He's, a, he's you know, a bit of a clown. But that's said with a, that's said with a degree of affection or, if not quite, respect. 
there's at least a sense that it is um it's a quality of clownishness not unadulterated clownery and that's what this government has has given us this weekend I think one of the best questions at the press com- the Dominic Cummings press conference was was about Boris Johnson because this story is very important Dominic Cummings is very influential the way that they've dealt with it has has been appalling but he is just an advisor you know there is this mystique around him which I think Alva's written about very well before where where we do sort of inflate his significance and and thereby his ego in the way that sort of he's he's written about both by his detractors and and his supporters but ultimately as he said himself this is Boris Johnson's decision and so i think what the outcome of all of this really depends on is how much what's happening with Dominic Cummings reflects back on Boris Johnson a figure who you know a lot of people even those who didn't vote for him you know like you say have a degree of affection and fondness for him or or see him as this person who at least they can they can they sort of they can see as more than a politician particularly as he was so ill as well that was a very human moment and i think we spoke about that on the podcast as well so how much does what what's happening here translate into our prime minister has very poor judgment and i don't think we quite know that yet although i do think this is likely to be a catalyst in sort of declining confidence in the government's COVID response rather than a sort of trigger for it, because there's already been polling that's shown that trust has kind of been plummeting before this, you know, in the week before, I think the proportion of people who trusted the government to control the spread of the virus declined, I think, down to 50% from something like 70%. So already, since the easing of the lockdown measures and all of that sort of communications confusion already it's been declining so this this could be a catalyst for that yeah I kind of like so in my column this week I've um perhaps crassly now I say it out loud talked about political goodwill being a bit like a political party's immune system in that you see this with how people react to Justin Trudeau right at the beginning when he'd do something like we'd be like I'm slick and attractive people were like oh my god Justin hold me now he does something and it's it ought to appeal in the same way. And obviously because he's benefiting from the kind of coronavirus rally to the incumbents, it kind of still is a bit. But by the last Canadian election, he would do those things and people would just say, oh, mate, I'm not impressed by you anymore. Why are you a poser? But he was always a poser. What, what, what mattered was is that at first the goodwill made people feel good about themselves. And part of why he's still there is he is very good at appealing to a chunk of the Canadian middle class. But... But broadly, that loss of goodwill colours, poor choice of words given Justin Trudeau, but colours every, <laughs> everything he has done since then. And in many ways, that doesn't matter if your opponent, as he was blessed with a, a poor opponent last time, if the economy grows, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the thing that I found wild about this row is ultimately the worst case scenario to him just apologising on Friday was he would have informally had to advise them for like six months. That was the worst that could have happened in the other option. The worst case scenario is this fall off in their popularity is permanent. And the kind of midterm scenario is they go into the worst recession for like 300 years, Brexit negotiations, which may end with an economic shock with their approval rating already lower than it needs to be. It just, it just feels insane to me that a party would choose to do that to itself. And in terms of, of where we are now, just for listeners, in case there are more developments after we stop recording, we're at the point where the most recent developments are that Jackson Carlow, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, has said that he thinks Dominic Cummings should quit uh, alongside 
the former chief whip Mark Harper and Tobias Elwood, who's called for an inquiry, and then about 20 other Conservative MPs. Where do we think it will go next? Mm, I'm tempted to say that this government never listens to Mark Harper. My feeling was on day two, when everybody... Obviously, the, the, the mic drop of the day two story was um, exquisite. But I did think, if there is no day three, if there is no sort of third story like, you know, I saw Cummings, you know, feeding a stranger ice cream in, in, in Castle Bernard, then, you know, if there, was, if there was no marked escalation, then while the outrage would build, there wouldn't be, nothing would sort of, there'd be no, there'd be nothing to precipitate it. I, I don't know whether that's a, whether the obvious holes in the in his story and also the the number of holes in his statement on on stuff like his blog and also on the the weird Castle Bernard eye test thing, I did think that if there was no new day three from the papers, it would be easier for him to survive. That they would brazen out the internal pressure and the external pressure, but just. I'm not sure I've changed my mind on that yet, but I look at that list of Tory MPs and not one of them strikes me as the sort of person this number 10 would get up and say, oh, I can't believe we've lost, to name but a few, the former chief whip who we didn't give the not particularly glamorous cabinet job he literally asked for. Oh, we've lost the former African minister who literally reported Boris Johnson to the Information Commissioner's Office during the leadership election. Oh, you know, we've lost Steve Baker. I can't believe he's um, taking a stand against this government. Oh, and we've also lost, you know, a bunch of people who hate Dominic Cummings anyway because of Brexit. So I don't know is the answer, but I've yet to see any one sort of data point that has convinced me to firmly into the yes, he, he will go because the government won't be able to withstand this column. The group of MPs which... Yeah, speaking as someone who, who visibly was not where the public were on this issue, the thing which kind of tilted me towards going, no, I have underestimated the scale of this, is seeing people like Paul Maynard, right, Alex Shelbrook, right? Now, these aren't people who are renter quotes, indeed Robert Halfon, right? These aren't people who are renter quotes. They are people who have, in, in I think, both Robert Halfon and Alex Shelbrook cases, they first fought their seat in 2005, right? They, they, they have a very keen sense of the politics of their marginal seats. And indeed, Douglas Ross, who's resigned as a minister today. And in an odd way, it's not so much that I think, oh, any of those people will worry number 10. It's more I look at it and go, okay, but why are you saying that? And what does that suggest about the mood of the country because i guess at this point i kind of feel like seeing as invent time travel and apologize properly on friday is not an available option i think if you buy into the idea that he is a huge asset to the government operationally which visibly downing street does then at this point you maybe just go well we've we've swallowed the poison so we might as well just try and style it out i guess the thing that feels to me that the kind of known question mark is do those MPs in marginal seats represent a very important canary in the coal mine? Because right, basically, ultimately, if it just turns out that there's been a like one-off permanent or at least short-term reduction in the government's approval ratings, that's fine, for a given value of the word, fine. If it turns out the next week, oh, hey, another five points, then I think at some point, right, the kind of... But that said, political parties always fail to U-turn when it would just be easier. So I guess I kind of also think probably at this point they'll just go in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, yeah, I found the um, number of MPs who either changed their minds on it, which which 
that a few of them have been saying that and the, and the ones who have given reasoning for why they want Dominic Cummings to stand down is because of, well, most of them quote things that their constituents have been telling them. And usually if you're an MP with a political political agenda, you can use sort of what your constituents are saying to sort of uh, as a stick to beat someone with. But this has been sort of universally the reasoning that has been given by by all of these all of these MPs and it's something that you know as Alva said you hear from from people sort of across the spectrum and what I'd be particularly interested in is there's a lot of MPs who do represent these rural areas who were very worried from the start that that there wasn't being enough done to stop people traveling to their second homes I know that's technically not what Dominic Cummings was doing but the advice on essential travel was quite specific it was don't go to your second home or another part of the country a second residence for for holiday purposes or for isolation purposes and the reason for that is because if you do go to isolate with the intention of not seeing anyone else which was as Dominic Cummings has said was his intention you still might get ill enough to have to go to hospital which did happen with his family so the problem there is that you potentially spread the virus to other health services that may not be as well funded and also may not have actually had to come into contact with the with the virus before then. And lots of MPs, particularly MPs who represent rural constituencies, many of whom are Tories, were concerned about this from the start. So even if they're not Dominic Cummings' opponents, they are going to have locals, local residents, writing to them about this. That's for sure, because that's been a, that's been a theme from the start. And there are areas of the country like the Lake District that have had sort of high transmission rates because of this kind of people driving when they shouldn't have been doing. And one of the key things that we found when we covered this, which was during the time that Dominic Cummings was in Durham, we now know, was that people were arriving at midnight, sort of sneaking in. And he did say that he arrived at midnight. So that really chimed with me for that piece. And it got me thinking about you know, what those MPs will be hearing from from people in their constituencies. So, you know, I don't know if that will be enough to tip the scales, but I do think that there will be other people who are getting this much in their inboxes and their and their mailbags who will feel like it's impossible to defend. Yeah, I mean, I suppose my answer to my own question is that I feel like in some important ways, Conservative MPs are of one mind even if what they're doing publicly is different, which is that ultimately all of them want to draw a line under this and want the government to go back to focusing on the coronavirus response and for this to no longer be in the news. And they're just approaching it in different ways. So some people think that the only way is to get Dominic Cummings to go, which is why their head is above the parapet. And they think it's necessary to distance themselves from this decision. Whereas other people think that they can more successfully draw a line under it by just saying that they've communicated their concerns privately to the prime minister, but they think that the important thing is to just move on. And I think that maybe it could just be a question of time, even if nothing really changes, if we're still talking about this in a day or two, maybe those people who just want to draw a line under it and get on with it will feel like they can't do that unless they also put pressure on. I mean, I was speaking to a Scottish Conservative earlier who would be in the camp of just wanting to draw a line under things and move on. And the second I got off the call, Jackson Carlaw had come out, the the leader of the Scottish Conservatives had come out to say that he thought Dominic Cummings should resign. So I I can see that happening. But also on, on Stephen's point about, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound thing, this is such a nerdy point and, and possibly not really that relevant. But just because I've like there there is this argument that basically 
the prime minister has has hitched his wagon to Dominic Cummings at this point and can't go back on that decision. And an economist would possibly refer to that as sunk cost fallacy. So basically like this idea that people wrongly think that when they have, for example, spent money on a theatre ticket or something, that because they've spent the money, they should then go to the theatre, that, that the cost determines the present action. Whereas really the proper approach would be to think that like the the cost the expenditure has been made either way and it doesn't actually affect the current decision of whether you go to the theater or not if the th- if going to the theater is a bad idea you should still not go to the theater and i think that like i mean political capital is not the same as real money but ultimately if the right thing to do is to cut dominic cummings loose and let him advise the government informally you know have a bit of distance then he comes back advises informally and then he actually works on the next general election campaign that you know that's still the right thing to do even if you have spent political capital on doing the wrong thing first hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And now it's time for a section we like to call you ask, you ask, ask us. us. Gosh, Pat, no enthusiasm there. So this is a question. No, no, welcome well, back, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, I, I thought I thought that I should make amends for my neglect of that bit before I leave. So uh, that that's my compromise. Okay, I great. hear from a source within the Murdoch Empire that it's actually in Patrick's contract and he won't have to do any call and response. Like this, just, yeah, under no circumstances, like his rider. Like, yeah, yeah, no. So this is a question from Alan who writes to say, when you get to a radio or TV studio and see that for reasons of editorial balance, you've been asked to speak alongside a journalist from a publication on the other side of the political aisle, does this affect what you say and how you say it? So Stephen, you were on the airwaves over the weekend speaking about Dominic Cummings. What would you say to that? Well, I guess like the one of the slightly weird things about the fact that broadcasters in general but the BBC in particular does really love to have almost every conversation be a heated debate is then I feel like whenever I bump into someone like the number one question you'll hear is like people will mainly go like oh what is say Raphael Bear like what is Owen Jones like what is um I was about to say what is a noose like obviously that is a question I can in fact answer um and mostly <laughs> I'm just like I don't know I never appear with any of these people <laughs> Whereas you you appear with people on the right quite a lot. I think it basically, one of the problems with that format, I think, which I think I felt quite acutely this week, is that 
And broadly, right, there are two types of journalists and get invited on that kind of thing. People who do analysis and people who do, you know, who are polemicists, right, broadly. And I think they're both perfectly respectable parts of the journalistic firmament. The thing that is is actually more difficult is not so much when you're like, okay, so that person is going to do a, my side is brilliant, my side is great, when I, to be honest, kind of just ignore them. I don't think that it adds value for someone to go, the leader is great, the leader is wonderful, they have made no mistakes, because people can come to that conclusion themselves. So I just tend not to interact with it. Like I just kind of you, you listen and, and and if they say something that is factually accurate or accurate, you might sometimes go like, well, yes, actually, that is what, what that clause says. The difficulty more I have is when I see someone like, so I did the World at One with um, Tom Newton Dunn at The Sun, who obviously The Sun has a very strong partisan lead, but he himself is always very straight back. Here's what the mood in the parliamentary party is. Here's what these factors are whenever he does broadcast. And in another way, the thing I always struggle with in that slot is I know that what will happen is is that he will broadly say things that are well-sourced and even if I disagree with the conclusion, you kind of go, yeah, that's about right. And the question that will come at me after he's finished speaking will be, Stephen Bush, is Tom Newton done a crook? And so you always have to be like, okay, what is the value I'm going to add here? Yeah, I, I had this also this weekend with um, Anne McElboy from The Economist, right, where I don't think either of us really disagreed on very much, but you kind of have this thing where you're kind of continually being shunted. So with that, I'll kind of try and work out, okay, what is the way that I will do the the well, yes, Clive? And I would broadly agree with the point that Soerno has made. And actually, how do you build on that? That actually, for me at least, is more of a kind of okay, what am I going to do? Because we're going to be expected to disagree and we don't. Anoush, what do you what do? You do? No, that sounds, very, that sounds very familiar to me. I find that I've, I feel almost intimidated into doing that kind of format, not by anyone in particular, but kind of my own insecurities. Because every time I go on one of these programmes like Politics Live, I'm always the one panellist who's never clipped <laughs> for social media because I never say anything <laughs> controversial. And it's probably because I'm trying to do a form of, of what, what you do, Stephen, which is sort of trying to provide some analysis and context to a story and sort of make my suggestions of what I think its significance is, is based on, you know, what I know and also my experience of previous stories. And that's not necessarily what they're looking for on programmes like that. And they always sort of put me on with an older, a much older right-wing man, preferably much taller as well. So we sort of look comical side by side. We used to do, do you remember um, on the Daily Politics, they used to do the little bit out on College Green with two journalists who analysed what was going on in, in that day's politics on a Monday. I used to do that and I was always, but Tom Newton Dunn's really tall. I was always yeah, with him or someone really like that. And my parents just used to laugh so, so much. They'd be like, don't they have a yellow pages they can give you? No so, offense, Anoush, but I don't think there are enough yellow pages in the whole of London to close the gap. <laughs> There's not enough numbers. <laughs> and they've they've discontinued the print edition now, so your your days are um your days <laughs> my are days of journalism are numbered. <laughs> no pun intended. I used to find it intimidating because you know these are the titans of print journalism, but now I just sort of know that I can feel a little bit more comfortable that I don't have to do what's expected of me I can just say what I actually think and if they don't like it you know maybe I'm not a right fit for the program but usually you know you do get asked back so it's um you're trying to give the producers what they want but also trying to maintain your integrity yeah my the input I can give into this segment is limited because the only regular television gigs I've ever done are 
STV Scotland tonight, which is um, seldom a disco. There was a period during the Brexit crisis where sort of once or twice a week, I would just explain the backstop for the edification of views in Scotland very late at night. That wasn't really a partisan ding dong. And my other regular PD gig was um, the, again, explaining what was going on in Brexit for um, views of Sunday politics, Northern Ireland. And that was mm. by myself as well. So I've, I've only ever done things where it's just um, me flying a flag of Westminster expertise, gossip, whatever, by myself. So I've never really done a ding dong. The only time I've been on Newsnight, I was on with um, I was on with Madeline Grant from the from the Telegraph. She was clipped. I wasn't. So draw your own conclusions. My media career has not yielded any amazing scraps, or indeed, or indeed, viral moments. Yeah, for me. Um, someone, <laughs> what did someone? Oh, I'm still scarred by the views of the government press conference. Who thought I was wearing a wig? So that's the only. Um, <laughs> that's the only viral moment I've had. Oh, I was on Charlie Brooker's anti-viral. Oh my god, I got so excited when I saw that. Thankfully, he didn't um, take the mickey at me. So, as someone who has been clipped after every politics live appearance, I'm, I I never really thought that was a good thing, but I definitely don't think it is now. I yeah, I think it's interesting that that tension between being a sort of polemicist and an analyst, because I get I get the feeling anytime I do something like that that they don't necessarily want too much analysis. And again, similar to Anush and Stephen, like. If you go, if you're on TV with someone like Tom Newton Dunn, which I was, and people did make the jokes about where was the box, I think you do realise that. I mean, people can disagree or reach slightly different conclusions, but ultimately, you know, people who are well sourced within Westminster will say broadly similar things and will provide similar insights. And so, the fact that you're from different publications shouldn't really make much of a difference. I think it's interesting because, I mean, Stephen said to me before I went on politics live the first time that like we like had the new states and we don't really have a party line on stuff um like as long as you're like not you know you're not an idiot you're kind of free to say your own opinions but I think that there's also scope within that to decide how much you want to be sort of purely analytical and apolitical and, and how much you want to make a more political point and I think within the new statesman like among our colleagues people take different approaches to that and I definitely on my second politics live appearance found that more difficult where there wasn't there was a Labour peer Helena Kennedy who was I think expected to take the the Labour Party view but didn't really because she's you know she's a respected barrister and broadcaster and, and you know she's she's her own woman and she very much wasn't playing that role on the show and it kind of ended up we were talking about the Marmot report on the impact of austerity on life expectancy. And there was kind of no one to give that perspective that was missing. And I kind of felt like I was being pushed into a more and more polemical position just because I was the only person who had read the report and and who felt willing to defend its conclusions, which I think were totally robust. And so I didn't really mind doing that in that specific instance. But again, in that case, I was on with Madeline Grant, who I think it's fair to say that, you know, she, she would be considered a, a sort of right wing polemicist. And I could feel like I was being egged on slightly. And I think especially in a in a context where we're kind of judged against the BBC a bit, where there's the the impartiality of the BBC that's kind of held as a gold standard. But then other publications take different approaches. I always, I think I'm still working this out, but like how much you want to bring in your own views and your own instincts on things and to what extent you want to be completely impartial. 
but I suppose yeah the short answer to Alan's question would be that I suppose like as everyone else has said you just kind of try to do the analysis and try to do your own thing and broadly ignore what the other person is saying but I think it's not always that easy You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush, Alva Ray, and Patrick Maguire. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.